Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show, where we explore the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, the top of the morning to you, and welcome to the Brian Buffini Show. I am very excited about today's episode. I think about 12 years ago, I first reached out to this man to try and have him speak at one of our events. It'll be fair to say he's been playing hard to get for a long time with me. But we're here today, and I am so excited for all of you, because I am a big fan. And you guys know when I'm excited about something, it becomes contagious. I think you're going to be blessed with some real wisdom and insight here today. I'm going to be chatting with relationship expert. Dr. Les Parrott. And now, for those of you who don't know, Les is a psychologist. He's been a multiple New York Times bestselling author. He and his wife, Leslie, who have written more than 50 books, and uh, what a spectrum, from graduate textbooks to children's books. Some of their most popular titles and books that I send out to people regularly, by the way, uh, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts. I absolutely, that is just, I don't know how many of those I've bought over the years and given to people. Love Talk, phenomenal book, and one I highly recommend called The Parent You Want to Be. His most recent book is just awesome. It's called Healthy Me, Healthy Us. And if ever there was a book written for our time, it's that one. Now, Les is also, many of you may not know, but he is the co-founder of eHarmony. And he's been on CNN, Fox, The View, Today Show, Oprah, you name it. He's been there. Les, I'm 12 years trying to get you uh, over to Buffini land. I finally landed you. I feel like I've won the lotto here today. Thanks for joining me. I'm glad it finally worked out today. It did. Well, uh, Les and I were hanging out backstage at one of our events in Seattle, February 10th of this year, when America had the hottest economy it had ever had in its history, record low unemployment, the stock market was at an all-time high, and life was just breezy and easy. And something happened on the on the way to the carnation. <laughs> <laughs> you came to Seattle and, and then everything fell apart. I just don't know what you did here, but uh, it was something else. Yeah, well, like I told you, that I was in Seattle and I helped them win the Super Bowl. So I left Seattle <laughs> and it turned into bloody anarchy. So <laughs> here we are. Uh, listen, I really appreciate you being here today because I know it's going to be a blessing to so much. And you know, I, I say this all the time, but we're, we're a society more than ever before that's just drowning in information and opinion and just yeah. sorely lacking wisdom. And you're just a man that you're a great thinker. You have a great mind. You, you, you don't formulate your opinions around 140 characters, and you're full mm-hmm. of wisdom. And, um, and what a blessing you've been to so many people. I think about saving your marriage before it starts. I don't know how many people I've given that book to. I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And, I, you know, the people I talked to for years, I just say, you know, that was a foundation that started. And I've had a chance to listen to you and, and Leslie over the years. And just a real treat. And I, and I want to dive into this today. And before we specifically talk about Healthy Me, Healthy Us, and some of the, the context, give us a little backstory for those who are new. I always love to talk to people as if they never heard of you or never read your book, and I know many have. But tell us a little bit about your backstory. Where did you grow up? And... You know, how did yeah. that all lead to psychology and books and eHarmony? Yeah, so Leslie and I have been married a little over 30 years. And um, that book you mentioned, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, we wrote that, you know, just I, I think we'd been married maybe seven or eight years, something like that. But the very first line of it says, we never had pre-marriage counseling, but we spent the first year of our marriage in therapy. And that's the truth. We had a tough go over our first year, but we dated for seven years before we got married. We have the same name, which is confusing. I'm Leslie and she's Leslie. And uh, it's even more complex because I'm the third, which means my dad's name is Leslie. My grandfather's name is Leslie. I'm Leslie. And then I married a Leslie. You married a Leslie. Unbelievable. <laughs> By the way, when we had our first son and had to come up with a name, we thought, let's call him John. <laughs> so we did. You know, the only thing better would have been a boy named Sue. <laughs> <laughs> well, we did give him the middle name Leslie. Yeah. So, and the, the second born uh, is Jackson Leslie. We just thought we can't leave anybody out at this point. Uh, right. We might as well name our dog Leslie. But uh, 
Anyway, uh, I grew up in, in Boston. Dad was a university president there, and we moved to Chicago and, and uh, went to college there and graduate school in Los Angeles and, and uh, postdoc fellowship up here in Seattle at the University of Washington, uh, working as a medical psychologist at the University of Washington School of Medicine. And I was coming home every night and I was telling Leslie these horrendous stories of head injury and burn unit stuff. And, and I thought, wow, is this what I'm going to do the rest of my life? And at the same time, I was teaching at a liberal arts university here in Seattle and teaching stuff like general psych and personality and personal growth and stuff like that. And, and I thought, uh, this is a really dark side of life and you have to kind of have a gallows humor to get through it. And I just didn't see that happening. In fact, let me tell you a, a quick story. We just moved to Seattle from LA and these students said, hey, will you come over to one of our residence halls, give a talk on how to fall in love without losing your mind. That was the title they gave us. Crazy. I said, yeah, we'd love to do it. They said, it'll be about 10 o'clock like on a Thursday night. I said, how many students will be there? They said, well, if, if everybody shows up, we might have 24, 25 students. I said, great. And um, we showed up raining and uh, you know, late on a Thursday night. And there's this huge line of students pouring out of this residence hall. Mm. And I thought, wow, I wonder what's happening here. Well, it turns out the word got out that these two psychologists were coming in to talk about how to fall in love without losing your mind. And they came to hear us speak. We weren't known. We hadn't even written a book. Nobody knew who we were. It was because of the topic. And that became a real pivot point for us as we began to think about how hungry these students were for information on healthy relationships. And Leslie's a marriage and family therapist. I'm a clinical psychologist. And so we really began to kind of lean into that as we simply tried to meet the needs that we were right. seeing. And that's what led to, you know, the publishing and the speaking and, and all the rest. It was just kind of paying attention. I remember some years ago, many, many years ago, I spoke to Robert Schuler at, at the Crystal Cathedral. And, and, you know, he has that saying, if you meet a need that nobody else is meeting, you're sure to find success. And it's something to that the fact. Right. Boy, that, that was a living example of that. We were just trying to meet the needs that were right in front of us. And it turned into something that has been a calling on our life and has been so fulfilling to do. I know you guys, uh, the Feeney brothers, you guys have done the same thing. And that's why we resonate so much together. Right. And that's it. Find a need, you fill a need, have some values, do your homework and do it the right way. And it continues to grow and mushroom. Yeah, I just have to get used to all that Irish music around you wherever I go. But other than that, I'm, I'm pretty uh, comfortable with it. Well, we'll get you there. I mean, you're already in Seattle, so you have the Irish weather every time you turn around. So let's just kind of dive into this. You know, you, you talking about, you know, falling in love without losing your mind. You help create the matching system for the most trusted dating website, eHarmony. I, I'm just curious, you know, because people, people think about this all the time and they don't really know behind it, the scenes. What are the most important factors in creating a match? Well, I'll tell you a quick story of how this came to be because it was kind of funny. Uh, Neil Clark Warren, uh, the, the guy you used to see on all the commercials, and sometimes he still pops up, and, and I just talked to Neil within the last couple of weeks or so, and, and uh, he is such a big thinker, such a visionary. And more than 20 years ago, we were sitting around the kitchen table at his home in Pasadena. We were looking out over the Rose Bowl with a beautiful view. Uh, beginning a, a nice conversation he said you know this new thing called the internet and I said yeah yeah and we're seeing that it's Neil and Marilyn his wife and my wife Leslie and he said you think we could use that to help people match online and, and lower the divorce rate?" and I said Neil you're crazy what are you talking about and, and at that time if you recall the internet was the wild west it was mm -hmm. creepy it's like really find the love of your life online uh, but that turned into a long conversation that night and obviously into a uh, a company that uh, we founded called eHarmony, but it was founded with a mission, with a goal, and that was to reduce the divorce rate. And that's really long before eHarmony. That was our, our kind of uh, call. We, 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 as social scientists, we know what you can do to instantly lower your chances of divorce by at least 31%. We know what you can do to, to make that happen. We know what happens when you match well to also do that. And by the way, when I say lower the divorce rate, going hand in hand with that is increasing your level of fulfillment and happiness and success in marriage as well. But this is interesting. Do you know that for every single percentage point that we lower the divorce rate, the lives of more than a million children are positively impacted? So think about the ripple effect this has for generations. If we could get down to the, the double digits of lowering the divorce rate, 
It would be one of the greatest social revolutions North America and others have ever seen. And so that's really what propelled us into this thing. It was a mission. And I'll never forget this. We looked around the country to see where, what are the best demographics for launching a company like this online? And everything pointed to Dallas, Texas. And so we moved to Dallas. Uh, Neil and his wife, Leslie and I, we were also working with the governor of Oklahoma at that time to lower the divorce rate across that state with a first ever marriage initiative. We, he called us his marriage ambassadors and we were traveling around speaking in every county and every uh, Lions Club, you name it, Rotary Club and college and church. So we, we did this thing in, in, in Dallas and uh, we tried to get pastors to meet with us and, and we you know, said, hey, it's a free lunch and we're going to give you some free books and we want to tell you about this, this company called eHarmony that we're starting. We couldn't get anybody to show up. And so anyway, I won't go into all the details. It eventually had a tipping point. I remember we got our first, our first person to sign up. Her name was Sue. First client, literally paid to find a match. We all ran around the office going, we got to find a match for Sue. We got to find Sue a match. You know? I mean, it was literally, it was just slow going. And then it just, it just took off like a, a hockey stick. How many, how many relationships has, has eHarmony helped form? Do you know the latest numbers? Well, I can tell you at its height, we were matching over a thousand people a day that got married. In other words, there was a, more than a thousand weddings per day as a result of matches on eHarmony. So pretty significant. Way to go. Great stuff. Starting around a dinner table. And, and yeah, and let me add this because uh, independent study at the University of Chicago a few years ago uh, looked at a, a longitudinal study where, you know, that's over the course of several years. In this case, it was seven years looking at, is there a difference from people that got married there versus, as we say, out in the wild, you know, <laughs> that just found each other. And the divorce rate, um, I won't have you guess because you'll, you'll, you'd be embarrassed because it's just, it's just so surprising. Less than 3% wow. divorce rate for those that match effectively and get the skills that they need. So, uh, yeah, pretty exciting. And, and, and uh, we're still fueled by that same passion. We haven't right. lost that. That's awesome. Mission accomplished and, and great stuff. And, and again, it starts with Sue. And it all does start with Sue. And it all, you know, everybody looks now and, you know, Les has his magnificent pad downtown Seattle and everything's great. And people don't realize the grind. You know, we know the story. We meet, we're, the first time we ever met, we're like brothers from a different mother because I've been to 2,500 cities around the world and stayed in more bad holiday inns than anyone has a right to. But that's what it takes. And you have to have the passion and the purpose and the drive. And hey, we're going to reduce the divorce rate and reduce the divorce rate. And this is what we're going to do. And, and here you are. And it's 20 years later. And it's taken for granted now, but here it is, less than 3%. With all the lockdowns and the COVID-19 and everybody's stay-at-home orders, everybody's version of stay-at-home is different. You know, it's funny. Last week, my bride and I celebrated our 30th anniversary, and we got six kids. And, you know, we had all the kids home. And, you know, five of our six kids, our oldest is, uh, he's married with a couple of kids. But we had five older kids home, and it's been a phenomenal experience for us. I know it's not been a phenomenal experience for everybody, and I know this. I saw the, the initial data coming out of New York, which was the hardest-hit area. Inquiries for divorce attorneys was up 50%. New Jersey, up 45%. And areas that really got stuck and people were stuck together and driving each other nuts and, you know, the, the, the stress and the strain and the whole thing. You just bank-shotted something a few minutes ago that I know there's a whole bunch of people heard, which is 31% reduction in divorce rate with a few little tips and then we moved on. So I feel like you touch on this beautifully in the book, Healthy Me, Healthy Us. You discussed that there's three hallmarks of health that I think attribute to this 31% uh, reduction. And maybe we could spend a few minutes on that because a lot of people are hurting. A lot of people are having a hard time. A lot of people are stay at home hasn't been, there's been some good, but there's also been a lot of rough. You have three beautiful thoughts here that I'd like to cover that you go over in the book. It is true, you know, and, and we've been uh, doing lots of interviews just like you have and, and talking with a lot of people via Zoom and otherwise about, you know, these quarantine conflicts. That's a thing, you know, it's definitely on the rise. I just recently had my team review some of the, uh, the headlines in major newspapers and, and news uh, outlets around the, the world over the, the last month or so related to marriage. 
And uh, if the reports are correct, you can brace yourself for a tsunami of marital struggles ahead. Uh, it's going to get difficult, and um, and it is difficult already for a lot of us because of financial strain and, and job loss and, and other things for sure. But uh, yeah, thanks thanks for for teeing me up on this this book, Healthy Me, Healthy Us. Let me give you uh, you know I told you how those students helped us uh, kind of really catch a vision and and meet a need that we didn't even recognize. As we went down that path further, we realized we should actually offer a course to these students, you know, an, a regular academic course. Have you ever thought about this? We teach students everything in the world, accounting, nursing, business, you name it, but we don't have academic courses on relationships. Relationships are the hub of the wheel, right? It doesn't matter how many titles you have under your name. It doesn't matter whether you have a sailboat or a great condo in Aspen or, or anything else. The greatest fulfillment in your life is what you just described a second ago, and that's having all those family members and your network of friends, that's what we find our lasting and enduring joy and satisfaction in life. Why in the world are we not bringing all the research that is there on these dusty academic shelves? You know, as our friend John Maxwell loves to talk about putting the, the cookies on the bottom shelf, I wanted to do that for these students. And so if you know anything about academic settings, you know you don't just dream up a class and start teaching it. You got to get approved by the provost and the dean and the committees and so Leslie and I put this little proposal together for a course we called Relationships 101. And uh, we wanted to talk about uh, how your family of origin is your, uh, really your university of relationships. You know, you learn so much from the home you grew up in, for good or for ill. We want to talk about that. We want to talk about friendship and the difference between friends of the heart and friends of the road. And, and what do you do when friends fail? You know, if that hasn't happened to you yet, put your seatbelt on and you're going to wake up some morning and go, what did he do? I can't believe it. I trusted her with my secrets. How could this have happened? You know, all these kinds of realms of relationship, bridging the gender gap, sexuality, falling in love without losing your mind, and how to break up and stay in one piece, you know, as a, as a student that's in a dating relationship. What do you do if you're the heartbreaker? What do you do if you're the brokenhearted? All these different realms of relationship, relating to God without feeling phony, all this stuff. We put in this proposal. We gave it to the committee to approve it. They looked it over for a little while and finally looked up at us and said, mm, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> we said, what do you mean? They said, well, it doesn't fit the curriculum. I said, what are you talking about? They said, it's, it doesn't have uh, enough rigor. I said, what do you mean? It, they said, it doesn't have enough academic rigor. I said, we'll put some information in there that'll confuse the students if you like. You know? <laughs> There's not a textbook for a class like that. I said, we'll write our own. You know, they said other universities don't have classes like this. I said, well, maybe they should. Maybe they will. Let's show them how, you know. Anyway, they turned us down. We left feeling dejected. We thought, let's not give up on this. And we came back a second time later in the semester. Again, they turned us down. We went through this three times. Finally, on the third round, they said, okay, here's the deal. We're going to let you teach this class Relationships 101 but only under these conditions. And they listed them off. They said, first of all, the class needs to be uh, pass-fail. We don't want to impact anybody's grade point average. Secondly, it'll need to be taught as an overload, meaning uh, that's in addition to your full-time teaching job. Third, you'll need to teach it on your own time schedule. That means that once all the other classes have been scheduled and booked in certain periods of time, if you can find an open window and an open room, we can put you in there. And then finally, they said, and you'll need to teach it without compensation. And so uh, with that, <laughs> other than that, other than that is a dream come true. <laughs> yeah. And so with that pat on the back, we set off to teach relationships 101. Now we had a room on Monday nights at 6 PM. That is not prime time on an undergraduate campus to start a class, but that's what we got. We had 12 chairs in the room. We thought if we can just fill half of them, at least we'll be up and running. We had the course description in the course catalog. Students just have to stumble upon it because it's not required for anything. And it was uh, midway through the first morning of registration. The registrar called my office. He said, hey, doc, he said, we're going to have to move your classroom, the relationship class. I said, oh, nobody signed up so far. You need it for, you need the space or what's going on? He said, no, you didn't cap the course. I said, what do you mean? He said, in the computer, you filled out all the information, but you didn't limit the number of students that could take it. I said, what does that have to do with anything? He said, 350 students have signed up in the last two hours. He said, we've had to move your class from that little room into the auditorium. 
And uh, he said, there's now a, a waiting list of students that want to get in. And he said, we still have four more days of registration to go. Well, that happened 25 years or more ago. And uh, we've been loving teaching that class at, on Monday evening at 6 p.m. ever since, nearly year in, year out, always a waiting list to get in. Doesn't that speak volumes about the hunger and thirst all of us really have for information on healthy relationships? Maybe the rigor of the uh, provost. Maybe, they, <laughs> maybe you should have invited their spouses to the meeting and see if they actually needed a little rigor finding out maybe they needed some relationship one-on-one. Hey, here's the deal. People are the greatest thing in the world. You know, business is easy. People are hard. And, you know, and relationship is everything. It relationship with God, relationship with those yeah. you love, relationship with your customers, relationship everywhere. And, and here's the thing. It's taught by people like you and me in the free market system. <laughs> I should have had you broker the deal with these <laughs> academics. It happened much quicker. But uh, I, I tell the students on the very first night of this course, Leslie and I are up there getting ready to, to launch. And, and before we even go through a syllabus or anything else, we tell these students, it, it doesn't matter whether you take any notes the entire semester. There's no pop quiz. There's no midterm, no final. It's a pass-fail course. You're going to get out of this, whatever it is you'd like to get out of it. Except on this very first night, we want you to write down one single sentence. And we tell them this sentence has the potential to revolutionize every potential relationship you ever have in your life. And they all get poised with their pencils or their keyboards. And uh, we, we give it out to them and we pre repeat it several times. Here it is. If you try to build intimacy with another person, before you've done the difficult work of getting whole on your own, all your relationships become an attempt to complete yourself. Let me say it one more time. If you try to build a connection, you try to build a friendship, you try to build um, any kind of relationship with another person, before you've done the difficult work of getting whole, getting healthy on your own, all your relationships become an attempt to complete yourself and they'll fall flat. Why? Because no one was designed to complete you. That's the work that you have to do, right? That, Hold on, that stop. Wholeness. Are you telling me that Jerry Maguire is not true? Are you telling me that you complete me is actually not true? <laughs> you know, that's one of the most quoted movies in cinematic history. Everybody came out of the theater shouting, you know, show me the money. And you had me at hello. But that line, you complete me, has messed up more couples. <laughs> and, and I'm not against romance, right? Say those words. I, I Go for it. But just know that if you're really buying into that, that that's that person's job, that that's in their job description, they should complete you, you're going to be sorely disappointed. That's why the relationship falls flat. Does that make sense? No, it's, it's, it's profound, it's wise, and it's the hard truth. It's a loving truth. So talk to me about getting whole. Yeah. So then the question is, okay, how do I get whole? Um, and after really combing through stacks and really a mountain of research and, and consulting with lots of experts all over the world, really. We have come to the conclusion that you gotta get a lock on three things. And let me give them all three of them to you real fast, and then we can come back and drill down on them. The first is what we call profound significance. The second is what we call unswerving authenticity. And the third one has to do with self-giving love. Profound significance, by the way, that has to do with your relationship with uh, ultimately with God. And uh, unswerving authenticity has to do with your relationship with you. And then self-giving love has to do with your relationship with everybody else around you. Mm. Those three things, and there's, there's a section in, in this book, Healthy Me, Healthy Us, devoted to each one of those. You want to talk a little bit about profound significance? I do. I, I want all three. You know, I read the book. I listened to the book. I had my staff read the book. And I have notes here, and they want to know about those three things. So, yeah. All right, let's start with profound significance. This is this idea that you, you have to feel it deep down in your bones. This is not just head knowledge. You've got to have the experience of knowing that God loves you as if you're the only person on the planet to love, as St. Augustine used to say. You've got to feel that. And You know, I grew up in the church, and I can quote all kinds of stuff, and I used to sing in Sunday school, Jesus loves me, this I know, and all, the, all that kind of stuff. But I'm talking about a profound sense well, here's the deal. If you struggle with kind of this thing we call amazing grace in your life, tune into the single most important conversation you ever have. You had it yesterday. You're going to have it tomorrow. 
You had it this morning. You're going to have it tonight. In fact, you're having it right now because this conversation never turns off. You even have it while you sleep. It's your internal dialogue. It's your self-talk. Imagine if you could put a little chip out of the back of your head and put it into your laptop and it would tabulate all of your internal dialogue for the last 24 hours. Can you imagine? It would categorize it as either positive self-talk or negative self-talk. Which bucket would be most full for you at the end of any given day? Now, if you're like most people, what you would discover is uh, 73 to 78% of your self-talk in any given day would fall into the negative bucket. We know this from research at UCLA. And that's what I'm talking about. The person who has a lock on their profound significance, that has dignity, that respects themselves, that person doesn't have that kind of dialogue. Sure, we all have it from time to time, depending on the kinds of homes that we grew up in and so forth and, and how life has treated us. But that person that rises above it and has positive self-talk, doesn't beat themselves down, that person is on their way to wholeness. And here's the good news. Even if right now you're pummeling yourself with negative self-talk, you can change that because that's internal dialogue. You can reprogram your brain. And that's what that, that whole section of that first part of the book is about, is learning the tips on how to do it. But that's where it begins. Yeah. Makes sense? A uh, good friend of mine, Dr. Shad Helmstetter wrote what to say when you talk to yourself years and years and years ago. And it's profound. Yeah. And we've used it, by the way, to help people change their careers. We've used it in the business world because people go, I'm bad with money. I always show up late. I never get the appointments. And we've helped people change their self-talk in the business environment and seen transformational results. Yeah, we psychologists often say, you know, awareness is curative. Once mm -hmm. you become aware, then you can do something about it. And so you have to become aware of that internal dialogue. It's so germane. It's such a part of you. It almost feels like it's in your DNA, but it's not. But it's such a part of you that you kind of think it's just there. You can't do anything about it. And that is not the truth. I love it because the business applications and in sales, it's phenomenal. You look at, at Olympiads, you know, Olympic athletes and the self-talk that they give themselves. It just impacts everything. And so that's where it begins. And for me, as a person of faith, it begins in a relationship with my Heavenly Father. That, that's what allows me to have that kind of experience. So that's what profound significance is all about. Okay. What about unswerving authenticity? So now that we've kind of talked about that relationship of profound significance, the next step, these are progressive. The next step is being true to you, all right? I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody come into my counseling office struggling with that proverbial disease to please. And they walk around the world thinking, if I can just do this over here, maybe I'll get so-and-so's approval. Oh, maybe if I do this, maybe if I major in this, or maybe if I choose this as my career, mom and dad will give me their blessing. Or maybe if I do this, I'll get so-and-so to smile. Or maybe if I join this club, those people, will, you know, it's that kind of disease to please. And that's a, a terrible burden to live under. I'm talking about the person that grabs hold of unswerving authenticity that says, I know the path I need to follow. This is my calling. This is what I need to do in spite of what anybody else says, in spite of what anybody else whispers behind my back, in spite of even what my family might think of me. I know this is the healthy path. I've got to travel this path. When Leslie and I were first starting to, to publish books and, and, and we had some success with Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, you know, every six months we'd have a meeting with our publisher which was back in Grand Rapids, Michigan, Zondervan. And so we were flying back there and we had this meeting with a, all the folks, the publishers and marketers and all that, all day long. And afterwards we went out to this uh, Chinese restaurant for food just to relax. And I said to Bruce, the president of the company at the time, I said, hey, what, we've been so focused on Team Parrot and all the stuff we're doing. I said, tell me what you guys are excited about at the publishing house. And it was a hush fell over the, the table there with about 12 of us. And they were like, you know, tell him, tell him what's happening. He said, well, we, we're pretty excited about a new book that shows some pretty significant promise for us. And I said, yeah, well, what is it? He said, well, it's called The Purpose Driven Life. Hmm. And I said, uh, I, I didn't know, it was first I heard about it. I didn't know Rick Warren was attached to it, didn't know any of that. And I said, you don't need to say another word. I don't have to read the book. I got the message. I want it. The Purpose Driven Life. Who doesn't want purpose in their life? And that's what really unswerving authenticity is all about. Knowing your purpose, following that path, and not just walking down that path, but running down that path. 
You are so passionate about it, right? And you know this experience because you've worked with countless people when they find their passion, whether it's in sales or business or whatever, and they find that you can't hold them down. And people say to them, how do you have so much energy? I don't have energy. I'm just excited. I can't wait to get up in the morning and do this thing again. It's incredible, right? And so unswerving authenticity is all about that in spite of what anybody else might say it's being true to you. Yeah. Make sense? It does. And one of the dynamics I see with a lot of younger folks, they grew up with social media. They grew up with Instagram and Snapchat and all these things. And image is everything. And they've grown up with these pictures and these connections. You know, I, I, I go back 25 years with Bruce Jenner and the, the Jenner family. And, and here's the Kardashians come along. And here, here are my kids subconsciously comparing themselves to them. And I always say, kids, they actually don't look like that. Just so you know. <laughs> Dermot, my brother you've met, he has a very good friend who's one of the top image brand photographers in the world who charges 150 grand for a day. Oh, my goodness. Okay, 400 grand for a three-day shoot. And they have, you know, these... These kids might come out of a pool and it looks this and that. And you know, they have 42 people and wind machines and this and that. And you know what I mean? I, and when you meet the person in person and you look at the poster, you're like, what happened? Did you have a stroke? What happened? So today in this world, you know, like I, my kids, I can't, my kids won't let me take a photograph of them because it's not <laughs> at the angle and the twist and the, the, you know what I mean? This whole dynamic of everybody's branded, everybody's image, everybody's this and that and the other. It seems very, very hard to scrape back past this false self, past this image, to even rediscover our authentic selves. Yes. It seems people are getting further and further removed. You know, I have a little phrase I used to give the kids, just being yourself is good enough to be great. Just being yourself, good enough to be great. How do you think we can help people get back to that true sense? First of all, that God loves me just for who I am. That's the profound significance and I get this amazing grace. With all my foibles, I'm loved for who I am. And this unswerving authenticity that beyond the brand, you know, my mother used to, you know, have how she presented herself to the neighbors, you know, that kind of a way, how she answered the phone. Hello, you know, the, <laughs> like how do we get past that into the real authentic stuff? Yeah, we all have uh, social management, right? We want to put our best foot forward and so forth. But in this generation, the selfie generation, of course, that goes through an extreme and so it's difficult, but this generation also values vulnerability and more than most generations ever have. In fact, it doesn't matter that I have a PhD and that I've studied. What matters is I'm willing to, to show you my foibles. Leslie and I joke when we used to all get on airplanes and travel around, we used to do seminars all over the place like you guys. And uh, we would laugh. We'd get up on the stage and we'd talk about all our mistakes and people love it right? And, and then what, what we found to be helpful in it, because we can all identify with a pilgrim, a proclaimer, that's somebody that puts themselves above you. But a pilgrim, we get that. And so deep down behind all the selfie, behind all the social management, we still respect that kind of vulnerability and authenticity being true to you. Part of the, the, the solution, you know, one of the chapters in that section is, is uh, called uncovering your blind spots. And we all have them. In fact, just yesterday I was in a meeting, a publishing meeting, and it was a new publisher. And the publisher said, you know what I like about you? He said, you, sell, you have humility. You, you realize what you don't do well, and you're willing to talk about that. And I wasn't always that way. I've had friends and teammates that have said, Les, you're terrible at that. You, you can't keep trying to do that because you just can't succeed at X, Y, Z over here. And finally, I, I kind of hear the message, right? We all need that. We need people that, we, that love us and can give us feedback, hold up the proverbial mirror and say, hey, did you realize you got spinach on your teeth right now? Uh, because we just don't want to acknowledge it. Yeah. So if you want a practical way to increase this capacity, take some courage and invite one or two people that you trust and, and that love you to give you feedback on that. And, and that's why we also find great benefit from self-assessments, right? A personality assessment, those kinds of things, which I know you guys lean into sure. as well. And it heightens that. So that Profound significance, that leads to unswerving authenticity. And that's what ultimately gets us to this last one. You ready to go there? Mm -hmm. The self-giving love. The first one has to do with your relationship with God. The second one has to do with your relationship with yourself. And this self-giving love is with everybody around you. This is when we begin to transcend our own neediness and recognize other people's needs. This is when we begin to put into practice one of the greatest 
relationship lectures that has ever been given. One of the greatest relationship sermons that has ever been preached. Leslie and I had the opportunity of standing where we think, you know, experts think it happened in the Holy Land a few years ago. It's, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus said something there that was so radical. He said, you want to do something incredible for your relationships? He said, don't just walk the first mile. Everybody does that. We walk that to clear our conscience. He said, walk another mile that nobody sees coming. See what happens in your life when you start doing that, right? When you begin to walk the extra mile. And, and we kind of see that as this pithy thing we put on an inspirational poster or whatever, but it is so true. And you know this, you've spent your life doing this for other people. And, and Zig, you know, Zig Ziglar used to talk about, if you just focus on helping people meet their dreams and their needs, it'll be incredible how that happens. That's the extra mile, right? And, and this, <laughs> I got to tell you, I learned this lesson uh, when I least expected it. Uh, because I had a bunch of miles that were going to expire. You know how that goes, right? Mm -hmm. Back in the day. And I came into the kitchen and I told Leslie, I said, we got to use these miles. They're going to go to waste. She said, that's the last thing I want to do. Is right. when, and this, for folks who don't know our world, when, when you travel a lot, the greatest vacation is home. And, and what, what hotel do you want to stay at? None. What, what place do you want to fly to? None. I want to stay home. Yeah, and I don't want to go to a fancy restaurant. Just have frankfurters and beans for dinner, you know? And, uh, and so she, she was like, if you want to use the mile, she said, why don't you call your dad and the two of you can go someplace? I said, okay, that's not a bad idea. I called up dad. He was living in Phoenix at the time. Dad's in heaven now. But I called him and I said, uh, I got a few free days on the calendar. I want to go to Rome, Italy. I've never been. I said, I know you've been more than once. You can kind of show me around. He goes, that sounds great. He said, let's do it. I said, well, here's the deal, Dad. I will pick up the airfare if you want to pay for everything else. And uh, so it turned out pretty well using those miles, you know. And uh, <laughs> we went to Rome. And we did. We went to the Vatican. We did all the stuff. And then we're sitting in our hotel having a, a spaghetti dinner one night. And he reminds me of something I remember studying as a graduate student when I was taking some seminary courses, the extra mile. Jesus didn't just kind of invent that and just kind of throw that out there as a quippy thing. In those days, the Roman army, uh, they would put a law in place in certain villages that little kids of a certain age would be required to take that military backpack and carry it one Roman mile to kind of give that soldier some relief. And so in those days, all those kids would go around and put a stake in the ground one mile from their home and put their, carve their initials in it. And so they knew that's how far they had to carry the, the backpack. And it was such a common practice that Jesus used it as this, this sermon illustration, right? and walking the extra mile. And so as, as people are listening to us right now, they're thinking, yeah, the extra mile though, that's like a big, I gotta like Google, I gotta like plan, I gotta save some money for that, you know? No, 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 you're gonna have the opportunity to walk the extra mile today. We walk it in big extravagant ways sometimes, but sometimes in just menial ways, you know? Tuesday nights, I take out the trash, you know? Uh, it's expected, I signed up for that in my marriage. I walk the extra, I, that's the first mile, taking out the trash. The extra mile is when I take out the trash and I come back to the house and I don't say anything about it. Right. You follow me? <laughs> we have opportunities to walk the extra mile in big ways and little ways. Well, I'll give you an example. My wife is very verbally rewarded and I'm more acts of service, right? It's a discipline for me because I, I think about my wife throughout the day. I'm married 30 years. I married the love of my life. I'm still crazy about her. And, yeah. uh, but I, right before we got on to do our show today, I called her and texted her and left her a message. Now, what I had to learn, what I had to learn is that's more important for me than showing. I could show up tonight with a new car for her. Yeah. And it would yep. not mean as much to her as the little message and the little text. And the extra mile is getting outside myself, a little bit of self-sacrifice and doing something outside of my normal comfort zone. And it's become, yes. it's just a conscious thing for me. I have to work at that. Even after 30 years, it's become a good habit, but it's, it's outside myself. And we're, you know, today we have self magazine, selfies, you know, everything is about us and I got to be me and take care of myself and I owe it to myself and this and that and the other. And this whole dynamic that I see with self-giving love is there's a little sacrifice involved and there's a little giving involved. Going the first mile, that's what's expected. It's still a grind. The extra mile, that's the little kid picking up that backpack and going that mile 
And for a little kid with that big military backpack back in Roman days, that was, that was big. That was big, not small. Yeah. And so it doesn't have to be earth-shaking, but it's earth-shaking to go outside our nature. It's earth-shaking to do the small. My wife loves to cook. She doesn't like to clean up after she cooks. So yeah. guess what? I've just made it my business. I never say that. And I used to go, I'm working on that. Okay, you know, look at this. And we don't save the leftovers. And I grew up in a house and my mother would save the leftovers and feed the neighbors and feed the dog and lecture number 74. And that really went well in our marriage. You can imagine. And now it's just, I, I go in. I was there last night. I'd worked out. It was 10 o'clock. I had a long, long day. I walked in. The kids and mama, they had cooked up a storm, whatever else, and stuff was left over and there was leftovers everywhere. And the, and I just cleaned everything up. I just put everything away. I just did it. And then I shut up about it. And I got up the next morning and whatever else. And that is the big stuff. That's the big stuff. Well, I love it because you've tapped into the very heart of this idea of walking extra mile, of self-giving love, and that's empathy. Your wife receives love in a way that maybe is not how you're hardwired. Mm -hmm. Acts of service. You want to love me? Save me time. Do something that helps me get ahead. Do something that you know, Leslie's the same way as your, your wife, and it's the words of affirmation, as Gary Chapman likes to talk about, we, these words of affirmation, and uh, which is a struggle for me. I grew up with older brothers. My love language was, was sarcasm, yeah. you know? <laughs> You'd fit right in with the Buffini boys. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have to really work at that, but when I put myself in her shoes, I begin to practice empathy, right? And that's what you're doing with your wife when you do that and when you clean up the, the dishes. And I'll tell you this, in the midst of this COVID thing and sheltering in place and all that we're going through right now, the happiest homes are the homes that are filled with an abundance of mutual empathy. Mm. Happiest people on the planet, not the people that have a year's supply of toilet paper. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's mutual empathy. Mm. And that's, again, at the hub of the wheel. That's what relationships are all about. Most people think they do that better than they do because we have a lot of listeners out there that are going right now, oh, yeah, got that checked off my to-do list. The research shows we typically don't do that as well as we think we do. Yeah. Right. I just pointed out the one time I did it. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, right. That's one. I want one for me. There it is. No, it's so good. You and I are on the same page. We have the same values. Uh, you have great skills and expertise and more PhDs than any Buffini I know. But the, the <laughs> dynamic here is, I, I, and again, I, I have a feeling we're going to do a lot together. We've talked about it, and I already am yeah. making my list of all the events I want you to speak at and things we have in common that we'd like to do together. And I think we'll do this again. I had one question I really wanted to get to today, in addition to our profound significance and unswerving authenticity and self-giving love, is in light of what's going on and the circumstances, everything's upside down right now. But there's yeah. one dynamic that's happening, and it's showing up in people's home as conflict. And I just made a note of this. It's that conflict is the price you pay for a deeper level of connection with your spouse. The question that came was, what's the best way to fight fair? Yeah, well, that's a short question with a long answer. Right. First of all, understand that avoiding conflict is not the goal, mm. right? There's a difference between a bad fight and a good fight. Some fights that are bad tear us apart, right? And then we have good fights that actually bring us together. And that's why I say that, you know, conflict is the price we pay for deeper intimacy. And then, by the way, there's a third category of fights that are just dumb fights. Just like, really? You know? Salsa and ketchup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I had a couple in my office sometime, I'll never forget, some years ago, and, and they, they were fighting over uh, whether their cat was fat or not. All right. <laughs> Really? <laughs> Does that really matter? Mm -hmm. So you want to focus on a good fight. It's really centers around empathy. Um, and I won't give a whole seminar on it. We call it the core of a good fight in C-O-R-E. And the E is empathy. If that's all you did, the research shows that more than 90% of our conflict could be resolved during time of COVID or otherwise can be resolved if all you do is both of you work at seeing the world from each other's perspective. Imagine what life must be like to be lived in, in your spouse's skin, right? Or your child, this works for parenting too. And, and it's that level of awareness. I came into my 17 year old son just a, a week ago into his room and his, he had a couple guitars on the floor and books everywhere and, and his bed was unmade. And I said, Jackson, I said, this is a crazy mess in here. And he kind of looked up, he was on his bed reading and he looked around and he goes, oh, it is? 
And I said, yeah, take a look. He goes, yeah, it really is. I got to do something about that, right? And that's what that awareness does. It jolts you into activity. And at least you have the choice. You have the option to do that at that point. When you bring that coupled with empathy, you'll be way down the path on having good fights instead of bad fights, fights that increase your level of intimacy, even in the midst of these quarantine conflicts that uh, are so much a part of our lives these days. One thing that's more contagious than this COVID-19 is empathy. When you begin to do it, it's contagious. It really is. And so if you're thinking, man, I'm, I'm the only one doing this around here. I, I get that, but take that chip off your shoulder and just keep doing it. They're going to catch on and they go, hey, life's easier when we do this. The second mile becomes the standard and empathy becomes the contagion. And I love all of that. That's beautiful. Well, it's all in the book. And I know we have a very good book buying audience. Healthy me, healthy us. Look, if I can get healthy, if I can help my family be healthy, if I can have healthy relationships, we're going to have healthy communities, healthy cities, healthy countries healthy relationships on all races, on all political divides. It's a big picture. You help lower divorce rates with the magnificent process that was matching a thousand people a day. And I think healthy me, healthy us, and all the other work you do is a gift to us. I want to do one last thing here today on our next calls and things we do in the future. I won't be doing this again, but every guest we've had, and we've had sports stars to actors, to speakers, to presenters, to business leaders on this show, and I always ask them these five rapid-fire questions. And it kind of gets us into this authentic world. And I love the fact that you said, hey, I don't want to know what you're going to ask me. I just want to go from the hip. So it's very authentic. So let's go uh, right here. And it, I might regret this. I'm saying this up front. Yeah, so. it's all good. What's the single best piece of advice you've ever been given? Oh, uh, put yourself in, in the other person's shoes. Seek to understand before being understood. Who first introduced you to that? I think Covey articulated it right. so well in book, but uh, I actually, I, I don't know that I can identify it with a single person yeah. before that. But What I've often found when I've, when I've dug into this question with people, it usually showed up that they read it in a book, they got it from here, and it was actually mom or dad years before that said it in a, in a less professional way where they got paid for it, right? Well, you're, you're talking to a person that makes his living on a platform speaking. Eventually, I think I'm the one that came up with that. <laughs> What's the one talent or gift you wish you possessed that you currently don't? Oh, that's easy. I wish I played the guitar. Yep. I have a 17-year-old son. I have a guitar right over here behind me on my desk, and it has this, this silly thing on the frets, and it's called a chord buddy, and it's designed to make it easy to play the guitar. And my son plays the guitar like Paul McCartney. He's incredible. He's 17, self-taught, and I just feel like I want to do that with you. So if I could press a magic button, I, I think I'd pay $100,000 right now if I could instantly play the guitar. I, I will say this to you. I have interviewed hundreds of hugely successful people. And the number one answer is some form of musical performance. Number three, what book has been most instrumental in your life? I'm sure everybody says the Bible. I would say a book called, uh, oh man, there's so many. One that comes to my mind is called Learned Optimism. Mm. And it's a book by Martin Seligman. I had dinner with Martin. He's a former president of the American Psychological Association. He and I met at the first TED Talk in California, and we were both there before anybody knew what TED was. And I had just read his book, and I'm telling you, it blew my mind. Yeah. If you want to talk in theological terms, it's the power of hope. Mm. And boy, do we need hope right now. Mm. Number four. Okay. You're not doing much of this, but you're scrolling through the channels, and there's this one movie. And every time you see it, you stop and you watch it. What's the one you watch over and over again? Yeah, Shawshank Redemption. Come on! Come on, brother. There it is. Last year, I did a whole event, one of our three-day peak experience events, on the entire Shawshank movie and leadership message. And that is mine. That is the one that stops me. Well, let me ask you this, because you're, you, uh -huh. you're a deep thinker with, and your expertise from psychology. Why is it that that movie resonates with people at such a, a deep level? Well, I've thought about it from every angle because I, you know, why, why it doesn't resonate with me and so many other people. Um, I think it's because you so often find yourself being in prison. Mm. You so often find yourself there and you feel it's unjust and to, to think through uh, the system. How do I work the system when I feel uh, so confined? Mm -hmm. And what would I do to transcend that? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's one of the reasons, at least. 
also Goodwill Hunting. And I think I like that so well because one of my boys, uh, I think he has the whole movie memorized. And so I've watched that movie recently and I've played clips of that in that Relationships 101 class. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of them. Well, you know, it's interesting. Both of those are hard. There's difficult stories, but both of them are all about hope and learned optimism, all about hope and empathy is the source of hope. And so that's that's where it's all at. And what I see with you is a dynamic hope. Dead Poets Society has got to go in there, too. My mind is reeling now with sure. possibilities. Yep. <laughs> awesome. That's great. Last but not least, you have something on your bucket list still left to be done? Oh, so many things. I'd just like to go out and have a dinner at a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I think that's where we should leave it right there. This is the quickest hour I've had in a long time. And uh, I, I really appreciate you, Doc, and I, I thank you so much for your gift. I appreciate you and Leslie and your work you're doing. I look forward to a, a long-standing relationship. And I know a lot of folks today were blessed and helped to become healthier themselves and to learn about profound significance and become authentic and lean into their unswerving, authentic self. And then ultimately how to have this self-giving love. And um, healthy me, healthy us, it's a very small place to start. That is a great place to start. We're going to continue on our journey together, and I'm excited to expose more and more of our folks to you and Leslie as often as we can. I really appreciate the gift that you have and what you do to the marketplace. Just keep on keeping on, and you're a real treasure, and I appreciate you very much. Brian, i got to say, you know, we met for the first time in Seattle here just at the beginning of the year, and we hit it off immediately, and, and with your brother too, and, and uh, got to spend some time. He came over to our home. And there's just certain people you meet in life and you know, hey, we're going to be friends because I want you in my life and, and you're one of those people. And so I'm really excited about the future and what we're going to do. Can't wait to get on a speaking stage with you because that's going to be hilarious and a blast. But uh, thanks for the honor of being on your show today. I really uh, appreciate it. And I don't say that glibly. I really mean it. It's a true honor. Well, thanks again for being our guest. Well, what a blast and what a blessing that was. Uh... I hope you guys enjoyed hearing from Les Parrott, a master of his content, a master of his message, and I think sorely needed this time. I, I will be sharing this podcast with all my kids and my bride. I think it's very, very powerful. So hopefully this has been a blessing to you. And uh, we're going to leave you today with uh, someone who's been a blessing to me my whole life. And without knowing the book, she's, she's a person of profound significance unswerving authenticity and as far as self-giving love i have one of the greatest role models of my life when i think of my mother and she has some words of wisdom for all of you today with a little irish blessing so until next time god bless here's mom may the road rise up to meet you and may the wind always be at your back may the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face and until we meet again may god hold you in the hollow of his hand See you next time.